Okay. Um, Ephesians chapter 1. Could somebody read verses 3 through... Let me check and make sure. Let's do 3 through 6. Anybody feel like reading nice and loud for us so everybody can hear? Ephesians 1 through 6. Jordan, thanks, my friend. Dive into it. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed, who blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to, holy and blame, uh, to be holy and blameless in his sight and love. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of the glorious grace, to his glorious grace, which has freely given us in the one he loves. Okay. Um, what I want to do this summer is to take a little bit of a trip back in time. Uh, to about, almost exactly, interestingly enough, 400 years ago to talk about a topic that I promise you in about five minutes you're going to think, this is my last time coming to summer RUF. How's that for an introduction to your series that you're going to do? Um, but I want, you, I want to take a trip back in history and then I want to tell why I'm telling this story. Um, I want you to go back 400 some odd years in uh, recent church history. That would be recent church history if you look at the broad picture of it all. Um, to the time of the Protestant Reformation. Now I use that word with a little bit of um, a little bit of qualification because by this time the Reformation had largely kind of really gotten its traction. Uh, now for those of you that don't know where to put this in, in world history. Uh, you do realize that from the 500s to the 1500s, uh, the world, at least the known sort of civilized world, was dominated uh, by a uh, uh, Western European uh, Catholic church. Uh, there was Roman Catholicism that sort of dominated Western Europe. There was Eastern uh, Orthodoxy, which dominated Eastern Europe and sort of parts of Russia. Um, but largely, there were a lot of problems in the church during this time, and there were individuals who popped up here and there before the 1500s or so uh, who thought that the church needed to kind of get uh, some of their act together in some, in some areas. And some of these people that rose up uh, finally started gaining some traction, historically speaking, and started making a difference. And what they were saying was is they didn't want to sort of throw away everything that the church was doing up until that time. They simply wanted the church to reform, to change some things, to rethink what they were doing and how they were dealing with fundamental questions of the gospel uh, in, in different terms. Now, by the time the 1500s came along, there actually were a lot of people involved in this huge movement, so much so that the reform they wanted to start became the... Reformation. I love a smart audience. This is audience. Summer RUF allows for audience participation, so jump in wherever you want. This was the time of the Reformation. These are people whose names you've heard, guys like Martin Luther, one of the more famous uh, uh, reformers. John Wycliffe, one of the less famous. Uh, there was a Frenchman by the name of John Calvin that we're going to talk about a good bit this summer. Uh, there were uh, Englishmen by the name of John Knox. All of them going back to their home countries trying to say... Hey, let's go back and relook at what we think about the basic issues of what it means to be a Christian and try to understand them all over again. Does that make sense? That's the Reformation. And a lot of these teachings that these people sort of uh, began to peddle 
were known as Reformed Theology. You came tonight to RUF, Reformed University Fellowship. As many of you have heard me say before, that in that sense, RUF is simply generic Protestantism. Uh, We're simply trying to set forward what we believe was not discovered for the first time, but rediscovered by the Protestant uh, reformers during, from about four to, four to 500 years ago. All right, now, most of that hopefully is review for you by the time you've gotten to where you are now. Um, but I want to introduce you to a group of people who were very interesting. Um, you see, because by the time you get to the uh, early, you don't let the iPad fall. That's the one thing you don't do. Um, uh, <laughs> there were a group of individuals who had really dominated the theological viewpoint of that time. Um, And it really was led by, without question, the most influential theologian of the Reformation in John Calvin. To be honest with you, uh, if if Martin Luther was the Reformation's uh, heart, John Calvin was its mind. Uh, He was a massive intellect and wrote all kinds of volumes, published all kinds of sermons, all kinds of commentaries on the scriptures to try to systematize this thinking that they were engaged in. John Calvin's influence began to be so broadly felt during the Reformation that people began to refer to the things that he taught as Calvinism. Um, Now, I'm going to try to appeal to you that Calvin would have hated (laughs) the, the, the sort of label Calvinism. Calvin thought himself doing nothing other than exploring what the Bible said as the only authority for what we have to believe in faith and practice. Uh, There was a commitment to the scripture. But Calvin had actually gained some traction during this time, and a lot of people had bought into some of the things that he had taught and set forth, except for a couple people. There were a handful of people that were not down with John Calvin, okay? Uh, And certain of these individuals began to sort of uh, develop a little traction themselves, Um, One of them in particular uh, lived in the Netherlands there in Western Europe, and his name was a guy by the name of Jacob Hermann. But his Latin sort of pen name that he used whenever he published articles was Jacob Arminius. Now, it's very important that you pronounce this right and not sound uh, uneducated, all right? It is Arminius, not Arminius. Uh, If you are from Armenia, you are from... Uh, Western Turkey or Eastern Turkey. <laughs> um, uh, you're not an Armenian, you are an Arminian if you follow Jacob Arminius. So bear with me. The pronunciations become extremely important by the end of the night, he said confidently. Um, but old Jacob was having trouble. Uh, there was a sense in which when he listened to what these guys who taught what John Calvin taught about, he just it didn't sit well with him. And so during his time at one of the universities there in the Netherlands, he began to teach uh, um, some doctrines, some um, uh, uh, um, sort of systematizing of the Bible that was very much in direct opposition to what these Calvinists were teaching uh, all around him. Does that make sense? He was a bit of a, of a trailblazer, if you will, uh, during his time. And what he did was he was one of the ones who actually... Uh, had all these disagreements with Calvinism. Now, the interesting thing is, is old Jacob did not live long enough to see how broadly his influence was felt. Uh, Arminius died in about 1609, but his followers were actually still quite interested 
uh, in the stuff that he did. And so they took his teachings and his writings and tried to put them all together in a nice, easy-to-package form, okay? And basically, they wrote up five different things that they did not like about what John Calvin had taught. Does that make sense? A top five, if you will. You know, you have top five uh, uh, records, top five songs, top five movies you ever watched. These guys had top five things we don't like about what this guy, Arminius, is teaching. Does that make sense? And actually, these guys, these students of Arminius, began to get some traction as well. Lots of people began to listen to them. Uh, Lots of people began to adopt them. And it actually turned into a rather ugly church fight in the entire Dutch world. Okay, In other words, you had some people that were across one line who were saying one thing, other people who were on the other side who were saying something quite different uh, in the process, and there was a huge controversy. Now look, small little note here, a footnote at the bottom of the page. For many of you, you're thinking to yourself, A, why would I ever care about this? And B, why would anybody get interested enough to have a fight about theology? Okay, for just a second, imagine that you live four or five hundred years ago. Um, People in those days did not view religion as an appendage to their life. You mean by appendage, like an arm, leg, something like that? They viewed their religion as central to who they were. And your theological beliefs in keeping with that system um, were worth fighting over, even worth dying over. So when all of a sudden there was a brand new sort of set of teachings that came up in your little village... Um, it did not just mean, oh, isn't that nice? Those people have their beliefs, we have our beliefs, but hey, let's not fight about it because it's all good. We're all going to the same place. Let, that, was, that, that was inconceivable to this particular mind. Okay. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, right, and that's why we graduated from that particular time. <laughs> right, Les? Uh, we don't do that anymore. All right. That's why we're leaving those people behind. I want to simply submit to you that these people knew a little bit more than we think that they did. Is it worth actually fighting with people physically and taking up arms? No, I'm not saying that. But we used to have these discussions. Where were we? Okay, so basically there's a lot of people today that would look and say, Les, we don't, why would we ever be interested in getting upset over these theological arguments? Again, in those days, what you believed had far more to do with the peace of society than you could imagine. And so when you find all of a sudden people going to jail, people willing to take up arms for it, don't be too condescending. In our day, what we've done is we've stuck religion on as, like I said, a spoke on the wheel of our life rather than the central hub of our life. And I would say we need to at least reconsider that thought. Do I want to go back to fighting and fighting wars over these things? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm simply saying that there's some questions that need to be asked about this, okay? I also want to offer you this. This is my second reason for going into this, is that for some of you, you're going to be surprised as to um, how the questions that these people were asking four or 500 years ago are much the same questions that I'll bet you're asking. That's my challenge. 
I want you to sort of hold that thought uh, as we plow uh, through this series. Okay, so back to our controversy. Here we have the followers of uh, Jacob Arminius who are teaching their five little doctrines of Arminius as they walk around. And you have the Dutch church up in arms about this new teaching thinking something has to be done, right? So what they decide to do is they decide to get together and have a, uh, a council about it. Uh, or what they call a synod, if you sort of work in those uh, 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 worlds. And this met in a little small town called Dort in the Netherlands there, D-O-R-D-T or something spelled, spelled like a Dutch word, like you can imagine. And at the synod of Dort, they spent seven months dealing with this question. What do they do with these five teachings that these followers of Jacob Arminius talked about Uh, What do we do with them? How do we understand them? How do we process them? Well, I'll go to the end of the story uh, uh, to tell you how it ends so you're not held in so much suspense as I know you certainly are. Um, In the end, the Dutch church decided that the five teachings of Arminius were not accurate for what the Bible teaches. And what what they said was, they said, we want to issue five corrections to these particular points of Arminius. Does that make sense? Well, those corrections to those things became what we know now as the five points of Calvinism. Now, my suspicion is, is that you either have zero information about this, that is, you've never heard of them before in your entire life, if you, do, if you do, that is great. You need to come back this summer and hear about what these things are about. The second category are those who have heard about it, but everything that you've heard has been like the worst thing possible. Like the five points of Calvinism is a doctrine of demons, and people who believe it have horns on their heads and tails and pitchforks. Um, uh, the third category of you have actually studied it a little bit, and you've been somewhat compelled by the idea, and you're just interested You're just interested in wanting to dive into it. Hey, it doesn't matter where you are. What I want to talk about this semester is to go diving into that discussion and figure out exactly why people thought that this was important. And I want to try to impress on you here in the next couple minutes here why I think this is important for us to look at. Now, small little footnote before we move on to that last question, um, before we break for the night. I want you to know that for a lot of people, they look and say, you know what, Les, this is one of the reasons why I'm not into the whole Calvinism thing, because that only started 500 years ago, right? To be honest with you, I just want to deal with the Bible, you know, and I, I, I'm going to stick with the apostles, Les. You, you can be into all John Calvin stuff. I'm going to stick with uh, Peter, James, and John, right, and Paul. Those are my people, right, and Jesus. That's, that's what I'm going to stick with. Um, Look, to be honest with you, the church from her very beginnings have been asking the questions that the Synod of Dort was wrestling with. For those of you that get really interested in this, we could have done a summer study not on the five points of Calvinism, but on the controversy that existed between a really old dude by the name of Augustine, I hope you've at least heard of Augustine or Augustine, however you want to picture him, and a guy named Pelagius, all right? This was another controversy that happened actually way back in the 3rd or 4th centuries, many, many moons ago. All I'm trying to say say is this. The church of Jesus Christ has always been asking the questions that we're going to deal with this summer. Okay, so I've held you in suspense for long enough. 
Pray, tell us less. What are the questions? <laughs> Why would a discussion on the five points of Calvinism ever be interesting for us? Look, y'all, here's the simple reason. I'll try to expand on it. The reason why we look into the question of the five points of Calvinism is because it has to do with the most fundamental questions of what it means to be a Christian. Let me just throw out a couple. Number one, um, why are you a Christian? I mean, is it, was it a choice that you made or did you feel compelled to believe? Number two, how do you know that you're a Christian? Some people, you would probably think, call themselves Christians, but my guess is, is you probably doubt whether they really, really are, right? How do you know? Third question, what is the relationship between what I'm supposed to do as a Christian and what I hear God is supposed to do as God? I mean, who does what in this whole thing, right? Number four, did Jesus come to just make salvation possible, dependent on whether or not I believed in him? Or did Jesus come to actually accomplish something when he did it? Hmm. Another question. Who is this Holy Spirit thing, person, guy, thing <laughs> that I don't understand? Right? What is the Holy Spirit? What is his role in all of this? Here's another question. Can I lose my salvation? If I can get into Christianity, can I just as easily get out of Christianity? Right? How about this? How can I know for certain that if I, begin, if I face my eventual death, can I have any sort of certainty or confidence that I'm going to actually be with God when I die? How can I know that? Look, y'all, I simply want to pitch at you that everybody, people have always been asking these questions. They are fundamental to knowing what it means to be a Christian at all. And the church throughout history has offered different answers to the, that question. I simply want to try to present to you in the kindest way possible. Please, please, please understand something. Uh, in RUF, we do not do indoctrination. In RUF, we try to look and say, I simply want to figure out what the Bible means. Now, for many of you, are looking and saying to yourself, oh, that Bible, that thing that has all the errors in it, and is just really the ideas of man, that's okay for you to be wrestling with whether or not the Bible really is what the Bible claims itself to be. But for now, you need to know that I'm coming from a fundamental presupposition, and that is that the Bible is God's inerrant, infallible word for us. And it contains everything that we need to know about Him and about our salvation. It is fundamental to what we believe in. And so for me, this is not Les Newsom's opinion. This is not the Presbyterian Church's opinion. It's not John Calvin's opinion. At least I don't think he would have said as much. It is the question of whether the Scripture really does teach the things that we're going to look at. And so what I want to look at this summer is the five points of Calvinism and sort of try to unpack them in a way where we're trying to be winsome. It is okay for you to walk out of here on Wednesday nights in the summer and disagree with what we talked about. Please hear me say that. And I would even go so far as to say, you are very likely still a Christian if you disagree with the minor points of this. But I hope that it will get you thinking in such a way that when it's all said and done, 
you may not think of your salvation in the same way as you did. Now, that's why I wanted to read Ephesians 1. One last point, and I'll finish, and we'll have Q&A. See, summer is fun because we can do Q&A. That stands for question and answer. For those of you that missed that, okay? All right, where are we here? I've gotten lost in my notes, of course. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, we're completely lost. And where we wanted to go with this. Hold on. All right, we lost that. That's good. All right, here's what I want you to notice something. There are two people that get blessed inside Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Take a look at it again. The first person that gets blessed, now by the way, don't let that word throw you off. Sometimes the last person you probably heard the word uh, go be a blessing from probably put the word brother or sister in front of your name. Um, I'm not, thank you. That There are people that would get tickled at that means more to me than I could ever say. Um, but but I, please understand, to be a blessing to someone is just simply to be an encouragement to them, right? Someone who was kind to you, said something kind to you, means it is someone who was good to you was a blessing to you. It's two people getting blessed in these verses. Look, first person, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? The first one who is blessed, the first thought that comes out of the Apostle Paul's mind is just what the universe centers around, and that is the very idea of God. In other words, it is the instinct of the Apostle Paul who penned this letter to say that when it all comes down to it, this is about God and not about me. Blessed be God is the first thing out of his mouth. In other words, the first thing that I owe affection to, the first person that I owe allegiance to is him. He sets the standard. He sets the stage. He puts down the foundations. This is my first point to you. This is my question for you this summer. Do you have a man-centered view of salvation or a God-centered view of salvation? When you think about your relationship to God, does it, comes in, does it come in terms of what you did? Does it come in terms of what you chose? Does it come in terms of the things that you feel responsible for? Look, y'all, I think one of the greatest problems that we have in our time is a selfish spirituality. We're selfish people in general. I mean, when was the last time for your birthday you looked and said, Mom, Dad, what I really want to do is I just, for my birthday, I just want to go spend some time in the inner city helping people. When was the last time you did that, right? When was the last time you looked and somebody gave you a $100 check or something? It's like, oh, thank goodness. I can go give, that to that, give this to that homeless person, <laughs> right? When was the last time that it was our instinct to be other-centered. And is it not possible that our spirituality is sick with the exact same thing? That we look at what it means to have a relationship with God on our terms. The Apostle Paul begins his discussion with whatever we talk about. It's about God. All right? That's the first blessing that gets leveled. All right? What's the second one? Who has blessed us in Christ with what? Every spiritual blessing. There's a lot of blessing going on in these first couple of verses, right? God, first of all, gets blessed. He gets the priority. But guess what? He has blessed us. Because He is blessed, I am blessed. And guess what I'm blessed with? Every conceivable blessing. 
Now look, I just want to let that hang there for a second. What blessing did you get in your salvation? And you're not allowed to say, I don't go to hell when I die. Even though, I think that's two thumbs up for that. (laughs) I'm pro not going to hell when you die. Uh, That's good. (laughs) But I remember when I was a kid having the gospel presented to me in only those terms. You know what I'm saying? Well, do you want to go to heaven? Do you want to go to heaven or do you want to go to hell when you die? Uh, hmm. I don't know. Let me think about heaven. Okay, well then pray this prayer. Okay, here we go. Close my eyes, pray the prayer, and suddenly what? I'm a Christian. Look, y'all. Every spiritual blessing God has given us in Christ, every spiritual blessing, there is nothing lacking in what He gave. And here's what I want to simply leave you with on this thought How can that be possible? How can it be possible that God has given us every spiritual blessing? Paul is saying that if you are a Christian and you have been blessed by God, then you have every single thing that you could possibly need. And guess where it came from? From Him, not from you. There's a couple questions to ask, right? Is my salvation, is my understanding of why I'm even a Christian right now, is it centered around me or is it centered around Him? Who is responsible? Where is the foundation of why I even consider myself a Christian tonight, if you do at all? Now, by the way, we'll say this. You might have wandered into this and have, <laughs> having been dragged along by somebody that you're like, why did they take me to this place? I don't even know where I am. The police came. What happened? <laughs> um, um, that's okay. Hey, you of all people, if you have no idea and you're looking going, I don't really feel like I have a relationship with God, you are in the right place. Because that's exactly what we're going to talk about. What does it mean to be in connection with Him? What are the ways in which we look at that? Now look, I'm going to be the first to say that we're going to dive into some things that might be difficult for us to really pound through. But stick with me. And I promise you when it's all said and done, it'll change the way that you look at what it means for us to be called Christians. All right, that was over the top, that last line there. But I'm going to leave it in the recording no matter what.